Well, good morning to everybody here this morning, and a particular thank you to Andy for his very warm welcome and the fellowship that we've enjoyed together over these many years. I'm not so sure that I appreciated the fact that he said down there, the younger man is down here and the older man is up there. Interesting thing, as he, as he made mention of it, uh, I thought, well, yeah, I'm old enough to be his father. I'm 83 years of age. And then I thought for a moment, what's that shiny patch I can see down there? I haven't got one of those. And I tell you what else, I, I certainly wouldn't attempt to follow his ministry last week. I don't have my happy socks on. And I wouldn't attempt to put my leg on the pulpit board. Not at 83 years of age, I wouldn't do that. It's a joy to be here. I'm glad that I've got the opportunity to, uh, to spend a short time. I've been asked by several people, or it's been pointed out to me by several people, that I only have until half past eleven. I, I retorted to one of them, but uh, then I bit my lip and I thought, no, I'm not here to do that, I'm here as the suggestion that uh, Liz put on Facebook to preach the gospel, the gospel that we preach. There is nothing more important than the gospel that we preach and have preached here over the years. Now, in the 20... The 227 years' history of this church, there have been 15 pastors. Work it out, 1794 to the present time. That's a very long time. I was number 14, and Andy was number 15. And occasionally, when we'd meet, we'd say, Good morning, number 14. And the other would say, oh, nice to see you, number 15. But between the two of us, we, we've ministered here for a total of 55 years. Think about that. I can only think of one other person here this morning who has sat here for 55 years. And that's Muriel Evans, sitting at the back there. If there's anybody else here this morning who's been here for 55 years, well then, you can tell me afterwards. But that's a very long time indeed. Now, for both of us, Andy and myself, it's been a, a great God-given privilege. But with privilege, of course, comes responsibility. And that responsibility sometimes can lie pretty heavily on your shoulder. Being in the ministry, being a pastor of a church is a little bit like a goldfish in a goldfish bowl. And you'd be surprised sometimes at some of the things that drop into the goldfish bowl. But it's been a great privilege, great blessing. But all that's about to change. We're going to have a successor, I was, Andy was my successor, and someone else is going to succeed Andy. 
And as a church that calls for a great deal of wisdom and uh, patience and uh, prayer from all of us here in this congregation, change is inevitably taking place. But one thing that will never take or never change as these changes taking pla- take place in this church, and it's this. Let me read it to you again. Andy read it earlier. I chose it for the short reading that it was, but that it encapsul- encapsulates as well. Sums up everything that we have uh, been part of in this place. When we came to you, brothers, we did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as we proclaimed to you the testimony of God, for we resolved to know nothing whilst we were with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, and our message and our preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest not on man's wisdom, not on his, not on mine, but on God's power. Somebody might question the fact that I've changed the personal pronoun there a little bit and changed it from a singular to a plural. But if you look at the context, historically, you'll see that Paul didn't go to Corinth on his own. He was welcomed by, supported by people outside of Corinth, eventually in Corinth, but with him were Timothy and Silas. So they were were there together. There was something of a security in knowing that in this place we are a family. Pastor's not on his own, hopefully never on his own, but we are here as a family and that we look forward together as a family, and we anticipate the future that lies before us. But at the root of it all lies this inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable, we are told. Now, that was a complimentary reading this morning. I want to take my text from somewhere else, and I'll tell you in a moment. But all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's absolutely true. And perhaps it's an artificial attempt to try and uh, distinguish between portions of scripture. Although we understand that some portions of scripture are easier to read than others. And much more interesting and controversial sometimes and challenging. But whatever. But what I can say is that most preachers have a favorite book of Scripture. I have a favorite book of Scripture. I have a favorite theme from any particular favorite book of Scripture of mine. And I may also even have a favorite text. Many preachers have favorite texts. Andy is preaching on a Sunday evening through the epistle to the Romans. And presumably he'll be in Romans again 
this evening. Now, I love Romans as a book, and I have a a particular text that I want to leave with you this morning, and I've got it in front of me here. I've opened the book, and uh, quite interestingly, uh, somewhere I had some notes that have probably disappeared on, uh, on the way into the chapel, so it's going to be a bit of ad libbing this morning as well. I don't know what happened to the notes, but as we get out, they'll be so wet, I'll not be able to read them anyway. But my favorite scripture is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation. Oh, I found them. (laughs) Slipped up from another page. Well, they'll be handy there anyway. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's my favorite text. And since I have an opportunity to preach this morning, I've chosen some of my favorite hymns, and I've chosen my favorite text. But it's a wonderful text because it encapsulates the gospel. All, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the the salvation of those who believe. Now, I'll tell you how many preachers or some preachers in the past who have considered Romans to be particularly special. I preached through it as Andy is preaching through it now. Many years ago, I can't remember how many years ago it was. It was very many years ago. I've been here now about 54 years, something like that. But many years ago, and then I dusted it off and brought it out for Tuesday morning meetings uh, that I was unfortunately um, made to to stop, to bring to a close because I'd had a couple of strokes. But I got up to, um, I've just got one chapter of Romans left to do, Andy, from Tuesday mornings of the last five or six years. Maybe I'll get around to that when the Tuesday mornings get back and I'll have the opportunity to finish it again. But Andy is in Romans, and we complement each other in, in a number of ways, and that's, that's one of them. Now, there are others as well. Now, Martin Luther, we've all heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer. He called this letter the chief book of the New Testament. But he had a nickname for it. He called it his Katie von Bora. I wonder it's a strange thing to call the book of Romans. But Katie von Bora was his wife. And Martin Luther loved his wife. So he called Romans his Katie von Bora. He loved the book of Romans. I might call it Glennis Jenkins or something else. Well, Glennis Jenkins definitely. <laughs> Almost slipped up there, didn't I? <laughs> He loved the book. 
chief book of the New Testament. Godet, the, uh, a very well-known French theologian as well, described it as the cathedral of the Christian faith. Now, I've sat in this chapel for 55 years, and I love this chapel. One or two little additions to it, health and safety, got us to put that nice brass rail around, and Andy and I went down to West Wales to research it right at the very beginning of his ministry, and it stops the children falling over the top and dropping on your head. Uh, some quite remarkable things have dropped onto people's heads from above. I can tell you that. That's another story, Liz, you'll never find in the history. But... Um, I come into this chapel whenever I come in and I sit in the gallery up there where others are sitting this morning in the back gallery and I sit and I look around and I see the little additions that have been made like the brass rail, like the nice new lights. There used to be uh, um, the hanging lights from the ceiling. You can see the little indentations where the ceiling roses used to be. And to change a bulb, a 300 watt bulb, you had to stand on that little ridge there where you are, and somebody would hold my legs, and I'd take the big globe off, and then I'd unscrew the 300-watt bulb and put another one in, put the globe back on and look down, and it's a long way when you look down. But I sit here and I look around every time I come in, and I think, oh, I love this place. We love the place where God, we're in thine honor dwells. I love this place. But you walk into a cathedral, Godesay said it's the cathedral of the Christian faith, chief book of the New Testament. You go into a cathedral and you look around Chester Cathedral, quite different to other cathedrals, Land of Cathedral with Epstein's Christ in majesty looking down at you, and you, you go into the cathedral and you look up and you say, wow, wow. You know, Romans has got the wow factor. That's what it's got. It's a wonderful book. Martin Lloyd-Jones. How many of you remember Martin Lloyd-Jones? How many of you sat under Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry? The last time that he preached in Cardiff at the Heath Chapel, I took my older boy, David. David is in his 50s now, and he was 16 years of age, and the service was at half past seven, and we got there at six o'clock, and we got a seat on the window board up in the gallery. You couldn't have got a sardine in there. People sat for an hour and a half to hear Lloyd-Jones preaching. And Lloyd-Jones said, No book or section of Scripture has played a more important part in the history of the church. That's a wonderful testimony from a wonderful preacher, a wonderful man, Augustine, Saint Augustine, as he's called by some Augustine was converted through reading Romans, as was Luther, John Bunyan, John Wesley, and a deacon of this church called Jonathan Williams, as a young boy sitting up in the gallery there this morning with his family. He was converted through reading or hearing Romans being preached in this church. And there have been very many others beside. And I'm indebted to Nick for his thoughtfulness for the water. Now, 
I'm looking at a text, just one text. I've got a theme from that particular text. But Romans is a book. I'm giving you a little introduction this morning to Romans. Romans is a book principally about justification by faith. And you say, what's justification by faith? What does that mean? You're listening at home, some of you, watching at home. Well, justification by faith simply means getting right with God. There is nothing more important in terms of literature, reading, than the Bible. There is nothing more important in your personal need than to get right with God. Because one day, you will have to stand before God and give an account of who you are and what it is you've done. Scripture is very clear that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there is no one righteous. No, not one. We're not born as Christians. We become Christians because we need to get right with God and be justified before God. We will oftentimes, when we make an error or two, try and justify our own actions or utterances. Sometimes we stumble through that attempt at justification. That's, you will never be able to stumble before that, before God. That's what Romans is about. And then, thankfully, Paul, a great mind that he was when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, sectionized it conveniently for us so that we can read Romans and enjoy reading it and understand what it has to say about our greatest need. This justification, says Paul, spends the first two or three chapters talking about the need of justification and then helpfully slips The next bit in about the provision of justification. We need to get right with God. Well, how do we get right with God? Well, interestingly, he spells it out for us here. First three chapters, we've got this great need. And then in the fourth chapter, he takes, he writes a little pen picture from history. Takes a sort of... um, a portrait, and he knocks a nail in the wall, and he hangs it up, and he uses a picture of the father of the faithful, Abraham himself, in the fourth chapter. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Discovered what? What it means to be right with God. Here's a picture for you. You all know who Abraham is. The Jews who are reading this or listening to this, they would know who Abraham was. And I suppose most of us here this morning know know who Abraham was. And then he follows that illustration of justification with the experience of it. His, His epistle continues and he gets into the fifth chapter and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is in a nutshell. Here's a man who knew all about it. 
And I am assured that some of you know what justification is all about because you've been saved. That's what he's saying. And then he moves on again and he goes into the sixth chapter and he talks about the vindication of justification. Therefore, since we, well, I've read it, since we've been justified, chapter six here, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, you've discovered, you've been shown, you've had this illustration, you know what being right with God with being saved means? And you tell me that you've had an experience of being saved, and it's a life-changing experience. Well then, address your life. Look at your life. And say, well, how do I fit into this wonderful revelation that God is opening up before me here? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? When you get saved, your life changes. Something wonderful has happened. And then as it goes on, it's demonstrated for us in the 7th and the 8th chapters and so on. And you've got that wonderful uh, chapter 8, the chapter of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit we, that we are God's children. There is no excuse from any of us for our sinful misdemeanors. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Christians are different. And then he, for my convenience this morning, introduces us to this wonderful little text. And look how it begins. Well, the very first chapter, right at the most important part of the book unfolding. And he says this, you're a Christian, you claim to be a Christian. Do you ever have an opportunity of testifying to your Christianity? Yes, you do, all of us do. And sometimes, most unusually and unexpectedly, when we, we're out in a shop, we're at a um, uh, checkout queue, as I remember, uh, an old lady in this congregation who's gone to glory now, and Andy conducted her funeral service, and there was a bit of a hold-up in the checkout queue, and uh, they got chatting with each other, as ladies do, and she simply testified to being a Christian, simple, wonderful testimony to being a Christian. Now, let me put a few questions to you as Paul says, you needn't be ashamed of being a Christian. You get an opportunity. Use that opportunity. You may rightly feel ashamed as you look back over your life sometimes and reflect on where you've been and what it is you might have done and you'll feel ashamed. But Paul says, listen, when you get right with God, when you've been saved, you need never be ashamed of speaking to people of what God has done for you. 
That's if you're anxious enough for others to be the same as you are, members of your family, friends, or whatever it might be. Let me put these few questions to you. Am I saved? That's a good question to begin with this morning. Am I saved? Look into your heart. Am I saved? Do I feel saved? Good question. How saved do I feel? Another good question. Here's a better one. Am I seen to be saved? Can you wander through life and not share with the people amongst whom you live this wonderful being right with God, being justified with God. That's the gospel that we preach here. He then tells us three very, very simple things in this particular text. The book is structured for us. We can sit down patiently, quietly, part of our devotions, Pick up on Romans, best book in the New Testament. So many of the the old worthies have, have told us, must be something in it. So what does it mean to be saved? And in this little text, Paul divides it helpfully again for us. These are the three simple things. Keep them in your mind. I like a bit of alliteration sometimes because it tends to stick. There's an affirmation here. There's a qualification here. And there's an explanation here. And we need all three. Now the affirmation is this. I'm not ashamed, he said. He's heading for Rome. He knows the intolerance of Rome. He knows what Rome has been doing to Christians and what it can do. All we get occasionally is a swear word, a swear word or a, a bit of a joke about what it is we're supposed to believe. And, and that's about as hard as it gets. It was different in Paul's day in Rome. So he says, I'm not ashamed of it. What am I not ashamed of? I'm not ashamed, he says, of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, incarnate, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary for you and me, was raised to glory in the affirmation of God in the heavens itself. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Andy's been using a little bit of Greek recently, and I love my Greek, Andy. It's the dunamis theou. Wonderful expression, wonderful. It's, it's described as a qualifying genitive. You know, if some of you are purists, and you love your languages, and you might have qualifications in French or Italian, or, or even Greek or Welsh, Wonderful language, Welsh. A qualifying genitive. What's a qualifying genitive? Well, you have a nominative, you have an accusative, you have a dative, and a genitive. Or the genitive comes before the dative. Four simple constructions, simple grammatical construction to help us to understand what it really means. Now, this is a qualifying 
genitive. It is the power. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel belongs exclusively to God and uniquely carries with it God's power and authority. So you have Andy Christofides preaching in the pulpit here and words come out of his mouth and he's a good communicator and we understand what he's saying but God is actually speaking through his servant when he preaches the gospel. It carries with it this unique power and authority of God. It's, the, it's called the genitive of the author. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the genitive of the author is? God said in the beginning, let there be light. He created the heavens and the earth. He threw the universe into existence. That's the genitive of the author. Who created the world? The Big Bang? Did it come out of nothing? It came from God, from his unique power and authority. And then that's translated into the recreation. You've got to be saved. You've got to get right with God. You've got to be born again. That's recreation. That's the genitive of the author. It belongs exclusively to Andy or me or anybody else, but to God alone. And we are privileged to stand in this pulpit for 55 years and declare this wonderful blessing, this offer of God to people who must have it. When the succession comes, There will not be a change. There can't be a change. Of what use would it be to put a man up here who might be as eloquent as they come and leave you in ignorance about this wonderful blessing, this power of God? It is this that exercises his will and purpose in the salvation of men and women and boys and girls and nothing else. What does it mean to be saved? Well, he assures us, first of all, with this wonderful affirmation. And simply, secondly, he adds a sort of qualification to it. He says it is the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What does that mean? Well, it means that this gospel, I'm a a Calvinist and always have been. I believe that God has the right to make his sovereign choice in everything. But I don't know who who the elect of God is or are, and I wouldn't be as presumptuous as to as to say that I do. He's called me to preach the gospel. And God uses this wonderful gospel of his and he exercises his saving power and he says it is to everybody who believes. What does that mean? Well, it means you can be a Jew or a Gentile. 
You can be wise or unwise, rich or poor, religious or not, black or white, it doesn't really matter. God offers his gospel to those who sit under it and who are ready to receive it. And you say, well, now, uh, well, well, I, I, go to, I, I go to chapel every week. You don't get saved because you go to chapel. You don't get saved because your mother and father belonged to this chapel or that you inherit it out of the walls of the, the chapel within which you sit. Some say, well, I can't be saved unless I come to the sacraments. Oh, well, you've got a wonderful choice of sacraments. You can have consubstantiation, transubstantiation, just a a simple commemoration. What is that? Well, if I'm a Roman Catholic, I believe in transubstantiation, that uh, the man who would be standing here, where Andy and I have stood over these 55 years, would say a few magical words, and the elements on the table would suddenly suddenly be converted into the actual body and blood of Christ. That's what's taught in the Roman Catholic Church. If you're a reformed Christian, inverted commas, I claim to be a reform. I have, my, my theology is reformed. What does that mean? Well, consubstantiation, well, it means that no, no, the elements don't actually change when they're distributed by the priest or the minister. Uh, what actually happens is that alongside the elements of bread and wine, unseen but there nevertheless as a means of grace, is the actual body and blood of Christ. Well, that's head-scratching again. Do this in remembrance of me, says Andy. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's good enough for me. I know what Christ has done for me. When I get an opportunity, I just celebrate it, the remembrance of it with others who believe the same thing. But that doesn't save me. My parents don't save me. The building, the association... Muriel's been here longer than 55 years, a lot longer than 50. I'm going to tell him how old you are, Muriel, because you're quite young as far as I'm concerned. You're still that young girl when I came here. But that doesn't save you or anybody else. So what does save me? Well, it's the dynamite of God, the dunamis of God, for the salvation of those who believe. All you have to do is to reach out in faith. Take the simplicity of all that he did at Calvary when God poured my sin, your sin onto him and Christ took it away forever and say, that's my saviour and you wrap your arms around him in faith and you love him. You're a boy, a young girl, an old person. It's to everyone who believes. And then what? And here with us, I finish. There's the explanation. We've had the assurance, the affirmation. We've had the qualification. By grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves, 
It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any one of us should boast, whether it's the work of the sacrament, the work of my father and mother, the work of long life attendance at a building like this. That doesn't save you. What save you, saves you is faith, personal belief, trust, love to the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour. And then he tells me something very wonderful, and he tells me this. For in the gospel, here's the explanation, our righteousness from God is revealed. You haven't got it, but look, here it is. God, well, if there was a lawyer here this morning, he would take up the simplicity of these words in the original and he would say, you've got the judge sitting in his chair overseeing this this, this felon standing before him. And he hands down his judgment. Here's the judgment. This is for you. You're exonerated. You're free. You're saved. And more than that. For in this gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I don't know how long you will live or how long I will live or how much of a retirement Andy will have, how many more years he's got. But for as long as it takes, God imputes. It's not just a a, a, a pronouncing a judgment. It is a judgment. God has said it. That's it. But within this judgment is contained what's called imputation. God pours into my life the righteousness, the sufficiency, all that his son did for us, all that he needs from us. He pours it into our lives and our nature is changed from the inside out. This is why you can't go on sinning. This is why the just live by faith. This is why people who are saved can be seen to be saved because it's God's work shining out from the life from the life of that individual. God makes over to us. He gives us this alternative nature. An alternative to the one that we were, were born with. It gives way to righteousness. See these little children? There are lots of them here. I love them. And they, they call sometimes and we, I got the loveliest greeting from them every Sunday. You know the scripture says they're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Surely not. Isaac, look at that smile. Melt your heart. Can't be. But have you noticed as a parent or a grandparent or as a loving relative that you have to Train up a child in the way that they should go, or they will depart from it. You don't have to teach a child to do wrong. It's there from the beginning, from when they're born. And it emerges, and you spend your life teaching them to do the right thing. Even when they get to 45 or 54 or whatever it might be. They might not like it sometimes, but I think your dad and mums have a little bit of wisdom an accumulation of the years. Why is it we have to do that? Because our natures need to be changed. 
We're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice. But God can change that. There's a hymn we're finishing with and I'm finishing with it. I've gone four minutes over. Four minutes. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Marks and Spencers. That won't get me to heaven. My blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, in his righteousness, with joy shall I lift up my head. He clothes me from heaven with the sufficiency of his son. And when I die, sooner or later, I go to heaven. Isn't that lovely? How can you walk out of a building like this and turn your back on such a wonderful offer of God? That's the affirmation. You know the qualification and the explanation is breathtaking. God bless us here this morning. Thank you for your fellowship and thank you for listening so patiently and so well. God bless us. Amen.